Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. One billion people around the world lack access to electricity, and three times as many do not have access to fuel and appliances that allow for clean and safe cooking inside the home. The lack of clean and reliable energy is a major barrier to economic development and an ongoing threat to human health in some of the poorest parts of the globe. On today's podcast, we'll be hearing from a woman who is at the forefront of efforts to bring access to reliable, affordable, and clean energy to areas that so badly need it. Her efforts go beyond supplying energy to ensuring that energy becomes a foundation of economic development that is available to women and men alike. Sheila Opera Ocha is the International Coordinator of Energia, the International Network on Gender and Sustainable Energy. Energia partners with governments and industry to provide women with access to finance, training, and technical skills to build energy-based businesses. It also works with governments, energy agencies, and other key actors to integrate gender-responsive approaches in energy policies, programs, and projects. Sheila is also the recipient of this year's Carnot Prize, which is the Climate Center's annual award that honors outstanding contributions in energy policy. Sheila, welcome to the podcast, and congratulations on receiving the Carnot Prize. Thank you very much for having me um, on the podcast, um, and greetings to you from Lusaka, Zambia, where I um, am currently um, uh, working from. Um, this is not where NGS headquarters is, that's uh, we're headquartered in The Hague, um, but it's nice to be uh, in my home country, uh, Lusaka, Zambia. And yes, I was, uh, thank you again uh, for congratulating me on the prize. I was very humbled and extremely honored to be able to receive the award. Um, and even more so, um, I really welcomed it. Uh, the cherry um, um, on the pie was that uh, I received uh, Kaiman Center's invitation to establish a new fellowship uh, designed for Penn students uh, interested in the energy transition and gender uh, to come and do the internship with us at Energia. And so we're really excited about that. Um, at Energia, we have found that uh, young people uh, do not look for problems. They actually chase after solutions. They bring a very refreshing perspective to us. And, you know, when you're in the, um, in the mode of, um, of implementing your programs and very operational, you can tend to look at all the risk. And it's nice to have, um, 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 you know, young students around that are excited and uh, bring that enthusiasm with them and, uh, you know, are focused on moving forward and moving forward with solutions. So we're really excited about that and we hope we'll be able to provide an opportunity for Penn students to really understand the, the importance of the intersectionality of uh, gender equality, women's empowerment and energy access, um, uh, working with us and also working with our partners. So, so the organization that you lead, Energia, is working to address the challenge of global energy poverty by ensuring that women have equitable access to energy. Can you tell us more about uh, Energia's mission and your role as international coordinator? Uh, yeah, let me just start from the beginning. So within Energia, we were established in 1996. And uh, for gender experts that um, uh, will be listening to this, they will recall that 1996 was when the international community um, at the UN member states ratified the Beijing Platform for Action. And uh, this really provided uh, uh, the framework and the agreements and commitments 
uh, from member states and the international community uh, to uh, mainstream gender into all sectors, uh, into all interventions. Um, Energia was established in 1990, this happened in 1995, Energia was established in 1996 at the backdrop of that. Uh, when a group of uh, energy experts that um, had been working in the field and recognized that there was very little legitimacy given to uh, women's issues, um, uh, gender issues, uh, particularly gender and poverty uh, in the energy sector that they were working on. So they established uh, Energia as an institutional platform for, when, for where they could work on gender and energy issues. Um, um, and so we started on that, and our vision and mission has been that women and men have equal and equitable access to and control over sustainable energy services as an essential right to development. Uh, so that's our mission. It sounds very complicated, but each and every word there has a lot of meaning for us. We go beyond access. We go to control. We go, having control meanings means that you have decisions over it. A lot of us have access to things, but we're not, particularly with women and with vulnerable groups, they might have access, but are not necessarily making decisions. And for us, it's the services that energy provides. We recognize that there are many different sources that you get your energy from, but it's the services that it provides for us to convert that energy uh, to, uh, to useful uh, products. Um, so that's that's important and that it's a right to development, although energy is not one of the, uh, you know, like we have a right to water, we have a right to housing, although energy is not uh, one of the uh, human rights. Uh, we believe that it's a public good. And uh, so there is a responsibility for our governments to provide energy to meet because it's so essential to meet basic needs and for us to develop. It also makes economic sense. And so that's really our mission and goal. And my role is the international coordinator, meaning that I am overall responsible for the work that we do and for delivering on the, on the, uh, on the programs, not just to our development partners that give us funding for the work that we do, but also to our own partners. Um, so I take that responsibility and have been doing so. Um, I joined Energy in late 1991, so the past 21 years. And I do this in many different ways. Uh, first of all, I'm really engaged in our global advocacy work. And um, so to give an example, I co-facilitate the Sustainable Development Goal Number 7 Technical uh, Advisory Group, which is convened by the UN uh, to support the UN in uh, monitoring uh, progress that we have on Sustainable Development Goal Number 7, which is on, on, on energy. Uh, so I do that with the Minister of Foreign Affairs from Norway. So that means that I am um, really I have a seat at the table where member states sit to deliberate and to negotiate and discuss and see what progress they're doing, not just member states, but also other key stakeholders. Um, I also um, lead our gender mainstreaming work where I gain, engage with um, not just uh, energy programs, renewable energy programs, but with our electricity utilities, rural electrification agencies uh, to ensure that they are uh, uh, including agenda into their energy uh, uh, work and operations. Also work very closely with the uh, countries that, uh, with the governments, particularly the Ministry of Energies, where uh, Energia is present uh, to integrate gender into their work and their uh, portfolio. Uh, but I'm also responsible for building our partnerships 
Uh, like for instance, the, we're very excited to be starting now the, uh, uh, the partnership with uh, uh, Climate Center. Uh, so that's another thing that I, uh, that's another thing that I do. So at the center of energy as work, you know, it seems is the, the understanding that women use energy differently than men. And that's often due to their being locked in traditional, into traditional gender roles. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how are women's energy needs fundamentally different from men's and how does this affect their ability to, uh, to achieve economic security? Yeah, absolutely. Um, very important. So, um, Indeed, uh, within NGO, we feel it's very important to deconstruct um, uh, up to the uh, lowest possible numerator that you have. So within a household, we really deconstruct the household into who's living in that household and whose needs and interests are being met. Um, so that's men, women, uh, children, the mother-in-law, um, uh, you know, who's living in that household. And uh, that's really important because of the context that we work in. We work in uh, mostly in developing countries. Uh, we work in very poor and rural communities. And unfortunately, in these communities, we find that uh, there are a lot of traditional, that you refer to them as traditional, there are a lot of traditional uh, gender roles that have been put in place because of what um, society deems is the way a woman or man should behave. And in the energy sector, for instance, um, women uh, and in the areas uh, in the countries and the context that we work in, uh, women have been deemed responsible, for instance, for uh, procuring, uh, for processing and for using household energy. So it means that they are really responsible for a lot of the domestic tasks within the uh, household, uh, which is quite different from men. So just to, to put some numbers that a woman uh, in the countries that we work for can spend anything from five to eight hours uh, doing domestic tasks uh, compared to uh, um, uh, 30 minutes to an hour of her male counterparts. Uh, so that means when energy is coming into, uh, uh, into the communities that we work here for, we are very interested in uh, energy that is going to uh, provide appliances that are going to help women relieve a lot of the work that they do. Unfortunately, in our communities, a lot of the work that women do uh, in the uh, in the domestic sphere is really their home, their own human energy, which is not the most productive. Which means that they might not necessarily have time. If you're spending all your, you know, most of your time collecting water, collecting uh, fuel wood, um, uh, cooking um, over firewood, which takes you a long time. Uh, then you don't necessarily have uh, time left over, uh, you know, for going to school. You don't have time left over for um, engaging in your business activities. So it's really important when energy is coming in, uh, that energy then, you know, really looks at what are the different needs and interests of, of women and men. I've talked about the household, but let's go now to um, uh, business, like I'd mentioned. Um, so what we find is that a lot of them, again, in the context that we work in, a lot of women tend to work in the what we call the informal sector. And in the informal sector, they use very rudimentary uh, forms of energy. Uh, once again, a lot of it being uh, fuel wood. Um, but also the businesses that engage in tend to be much more heat intensive. So that means when you're bringing energy in, um, for instance, it would be good to bring electricity in, which is important. But don't forget 
that they might also need to bring in uh, uh, fuels that will make um, women's productive activities much more, uh, much more efficient. Um, so indeed, there are different gender roles in the context that we work in, where women tend to do most of the household work, men to do most of the subsistence uh, productive work, but also tend to work in the informal sector. Um, so when you're bringing in energy, it's important to take that into consideration and make sure that you're providing uh, energy uh, also to meet the needs of uh, of women based on their uh, on their on their roles and their interests. Uh, and also, I should say that um, we energy should be a way of transforming women's lives. So we don't want them to be locked into their traditional roles. We want indeed. Uh, to make sure that we reduce the time and labor, but we also want to provide them energy that will provide them opportunities to build businesses, uh, provide them opportunity to go to school, etc. So then also providing energy services, for instance, for girls' schools uh, is very important so that uh, they, can, uh, they can better themselves. Energy is also extremely important for women's health. Women do a lot of cooking, and because of that, um, they inhale very toxic fumes while they're cooking over uh, biomass and traditional wood. And this uh, is called indoor air pollution, and it causes the toxic smoke and fumes cause a lot of respiratory uh, track um, um, uh, issues, health issues for women. Not only that, uh, it also causes reproductive health issues. But this is to the extent that we have 4 million premature deaths every year of women and children. Um, so that's a great cause. So if we have better forms of energy, uh, of fuels that women can cook from, also the technology that they're using for their cooking, if it can become more efficient and safer for them, um, you know, then we save lives. And then that's meeting women's needs and women's interests. So it sounds like what you're talking about is, is two fundamental issues here. One is that in these traditional roles, women are spending an inordinate amount of their day doing you know, household or house-related work the energy would allow them to to ease that work burden and then have more time to engage in their own businesses, right? To 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 actually make money, uh, to move beyond the informal economy. Absolutely. And also, you're talking about the, the energy is needed to to clean up the in home cooking, which is which is a health hazard. And it's just interesting as well because I I just wanted to make a one more um, contrast here. Based upon what you, you've been talking about, women's roles, I, I would assume that men's roles tend to be more formal jobs outside of the house where their need for energy may be more in kind of a manufacturing type business, something like that. Would that be accurate to, to say? That, yes. In the context that we're working in, uh, that we work in, indeed, uh, that we find a lot of men tend to migrate. They go to the urban areas. And indeed, they tend to work either in service industries or in manufacturing. And so the type of energy services that they need are usually um, higher, what we call the higher tier, mostly electricity based um, uh, uh, type of uh, type of services and also for different needs. So um, um, uh, providing energy for men is, 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 uh, is also important because it has, helps to grow the economy. But providing, and also let's not forget, you also have poor men. It's not all men that have those opportunities. We also have men, you have um, more vulnerable men, men that are with disabilities that maybe have not moved on, or men that are living in much uh, themselves in much poorer communities, uh, which might need the same type of uh, uh, energy services and needs that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that women need in their poorer communities. Um, 
So yes, um, the majority do tend to migrate and get um, 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 uh, jobs uh, in more manufacturing on the service industries, which calls for a higher tier of energy. A few minutes ago, you, you mentioned the, the issue of gender mainstreaming. And, and Energia supports a gender mainstreaming approach to solve the problem of women's energy inequality. Can you tell us a little bit more, what exactly is gender mainstreaming? Um, so the UN, I talked about the Beijing Platform for Action. I was at this, uh, it was at this conference, um, uh, this uh, international uh, United Nations conference, that the word gender mainstreaming was first uh, used. And it's not an end, it's a means. And it is a strategy uh, for ensuring that uh, we deliberately and intentionally take into consideration what are the concerns, what are the needs of both men and women in all the dimensions of our interventions, whether they are policies, whether they are programs, whether it's resources. When you're designing, we start from the planning and the design phase to your implementation. And more importantly, we also need to be accountable. So in our monitoring and evaluation of our policies and our programs, of our budgets, it's very important that we really intentionally do that analysis to see, uh, you know, is this really meeting the needs and the interests and the rights of men and women? Where are the differences, where are their gaps, and how can we address those gaps? Where are the opportunities and how we can build those, uh, build, uh, build up those opportunities? So it's really, uh, it's, it's doing that uh, intentionally. And it's by using this strategy that we say that we can uh, achieve gender equality. Um, and it is by using the strategy that we can say we can be much more targeted if we need to be and, um, uh, you know, really focusing on uh, addressing those inequalities and addressing those gaps and empowering women or addressing those inequalities and addressing those gaps and empowering the girl child or addressing those inequalities and those gaps and empowering the boy child or empowering men. So Energia runs uh, what's called the Women's Economic Empowerment Program, which supports women in the development of energy micro-businesses, and, and that's a way to address economic gender equality and health challenges that we've, we've been talking about. Can you, you talk about the types of businesses that women develop with the assistance of the program and about the impact uh, you know, that it has on their economic self-sufficiency? Yes. So one of our flagship projects at Energy is indeed our Women's Economic Empowerment Program. And this is a program that we have run in uh, six countries. There's Indonesia, in Nepal, in uh, Nigeria, in Senegal, in uh, Tanzania, um, uh, in Kenya. And we also for, for some time run it in, um, in Uganda. And in our Women Economic Empowerment Program, we have also a very strong poverty focus. So we really deal with uh, women in what we call our last mile community. So these are in rural and remote areas where we're trying to support women's businesses. And most of the businesses that we support in this, in this context tends to be uh, micro enterprises, uh, micro to small enterprises. And uh, what we do is we try to use a holistic approach. Uh, by saying, um, you know, first of all, we um, uh, identify the uh, identify the uh, the uh, uh, the women businesses in these communities, and we try to ensure that these businesses run as good businesses. So that means that there's a lot of capacity building, a lot of training into what good business practice is. How do you do your bookkeeping? 
Um, how do you make sure that you are aware of what your inventory is? What does it mean to invest in your business and, uh, you know, also take a salary or not take a salary? What does it mean to uh, make your business ready so that others, a bank might want to be willing to invest in it? So really teaching good, uh, good business practice. Um, then aside from that, uh, we also, financing has been a very big issue. So we also try to uh, be the link between our women entrepreneurs who are not necessarily looked as, um, who banks don't necessarily um, want to offer uh, loans or credit to, uh, we try to make them credit worthy. And this means, like I said, getting uh, a good business plan into place uh, with our women entrepreneurs, but this is also educating the, uh, our, uh, our financial institutions, mostly microfinance institutions and local institutions, um, um, as to um, why it is important to, um, uh, to invest in these women and why their businesses really make sense in the areas that they, uh, that they are where we find that a lot of traditional commercial businesses are not able to um, are not able to reach in rural areas where people are still um, um, you know uh, requiring services. So it still makes good business sense to go in there, and that women businesses actually have a comparative advantage uh, because they're there and they understand the context, and they can use different networks that commercial distribution chains cannot use. They can use their own uh, own networks to actually uh, distribute services, why it's important. So we work very closely with financial institutions. We also provide what we call guarantee funds um, um, to be sort of the insurance um, uh, for the women if there's any uh, default, et cetera. And that sort of um, um, reduces the risks uh, for financial institutions to be able to work with our women entrepreneurs. Uh, we also will link our women entrepreneurs into other uh, service providers that are, um, uh, for instance, uh, giving other forms of, of, uh, of training uh, that are uh, that are necessary. For instance, if we work with women entrepreneurs in our productive use, we work with the, our women entrepreneurs um, that are, for instance, running um, uh, horticulture or agriculture, um, and so we link them up to um, uh, to provi service providers that can provide them with that skill, so they can uh, learn how to produce agriculture products, uh, etc. Uh, yes, so for us, it's not just one-off. Mentoring is very important. Uh, we work with mentors that work on very closely with our women entrepreneurs on a monthly, on a daily basis, uh, where they've developed their business plans. Uh, they continue to encourage and to support our uh, women entrepreneurs um, uh, as they grow their businesses because it's very tough. We also ensure that we try to formalize our women businesses uh, by registering these businesses, because once you formalize them, this provides a lot of, uh, this provides entry and openings into, um, into uh, uh, other resources that they can tap into, which they normally would not do. I also want to mention that we have found uh, that when working with women, aggregating them, uh, because their businesses tend to be quite small, aggregating them into groups um, savings and credits groups um, has been an approach that has really worked with us. And these savings and credits groups uh, have the advantage that um, 
uh, it teaches the women um, they can come together, they can work together, um, and they can build it's econ economies of scale. So rather than producing just one product on their own, or rather than do uh, you know being on their own in terms of um, um, selling uh, maybe one or two or five uh, solar panels, they can aggregate their businesses and come together, and then they sell maybe a hundred uh, together. One, uh, if on the in their on their own, they could not do that, but they can uh, sort of aggregate uh, uh, and, and 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 sell together. It also provides the women with a lot of encouragement uh, and support working together. Um, let, yes, let me sorry. ask you a question based on that. Yeah. You, you mentioned that you mentioned solar panels. You also mentioned some agricultural, uh, um, I guess, products. I want to get a, a bit of a clearer idea of the of the products and services that the women are, uh, in, you know, in business with, uh, and, and really tie in the fact that this is really not just about getting energy to these rural communities, but actually putting the equipment in place, the appliances, whatever it may be, so that people can actually take advantage of that energy. Is that right? So the women are really yeah. working in the products that, that take advantage of energy as well. Yes. So we have, um, uh, we do it in two ways. Indeed, uh, what we do is that we try to, we support women to enter into um, uh, renewable energy value chain. So this might be fuel efficient cookstoves. This could be Pico solar products. Uh, so that's solar lights or solar lanterns. Uh, this could also be biomass briquettes. A lot of these value chains um, uh, tend to be dominated by men. And what we do is try to, we support the women to, and develop their capacity to be able to run businesses within these value chains. So they themselves, um, women get the training to understand uh, these technologies, to understand how to uh, run a business and to sell uh, these type of technologies. And uh, then they start providing those appliances um, to their own communities. So they then start becoming the entry points of actually providing these type of energy technologies and energy services to their own communities. So that's one. The other thing is that we work with, um, we look at um, um, uh, value chains where women are very dominant. So this could be in agro-processing. Uh, this could be making sheer butter. Uh, this could be um, in uh, processing uh, fish, for instance. Uh, these also tend to be very energy intensive uh, businesses. Uh, and so it is bringing the energy into those businesses um, where energy can sometimes make 20 percent of the inputs into those businesses. It's bringing the energy into those businesses. But it's also working with those women's uh, uh, with uh, with those uh, with those businesses to see that they are running as good businesses and are able to grow. Um, so we do work on both sides of the chain, um, engaging women in renewable energy value chains and making sure that they become uh, part of the value chain and are fitted in that value chain where they are going to make money and they are going to uh, their businesses are going to grow. But on the other side, it's also looking at women's existing uh, entrepreneurs where they tend to dominate be that in manufacturing or in agricultural processing and bringing the energy there to uh, increase the uh, productivity of those businesses there uh, as well. And, and uh, it, interesting as well in some of these rural rural uh, uh, villages as well, my understanding is that the women, one, uh, are, are uniquely well qualified because of their social networks to 
to socialize, to get the idea of these products around to the neighborhood so that everybody can benefit, number one. Number two, uh, some, of the, um, some of the information uh, that's provided uh, on the Energy site talks about the last mile problem, and that is that, again, because some of these villages are very remote, there's the problem of actually getting this equipment from the the final distribution place to these villages, and women are are very good at, at bridging that gap. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So what we normally find um, in the developing countries that we work is that commercial suppliers of these products will end at where the tar road ends, um, um, uh, because. Um, um, yeah, it's just it's 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 I guess it's more convenient for their business model. Uh, it makes sense for their business model. Where they don't go is beyond that, and this is where we find that uh, women uh, have really have a comparative advantage. That women are running their small um, uh, informal businesses in these areas that are serving communities here, uh, where commercial businesses find it very difficult uh, to reach. So that these existing women businesses provide a ready springboard uh, for where uh, energy businesses can start, uh, renewable energy businesses can start and you can roll them out. And they can move the products then from where the uh, commercial um, uh, distributors, uh, renewable energy distributors end uh, to where um, uh, rural and poor communities are, are, are living. And what the women need is just uh, that support uh, to be able to run proper businesses in these areas, to be able to scale and to grow their businesses, to take them from being, um, you know, nascent type of businesses to the, uh, to, the, to the next level. And this is where energy comes in. We come in with our support in terms of capacity building, in terms of linking to capital, um, in, um, in terms of uh, making sure that they get the right of type of uh, uh, training from other skills and other providers that they need in, to be able to, uh, uh, to grow their businesses. Now, uh, Energy lobbies governments uh, to establish energy and gender equality programs. What types of, uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about how it prioritizes these programs, how it works with governments to build and scale these programs? Yeah. So we work with governments at two different levels. We work with, oh, let me say three. We work with governments at the national level, and that's mainly ministries of energy that are responsible uh, for uh, providing energy within our countries, in developing countries. So that's at one level. Uh, we also work with governments at the uh, international level, mainly in uh, within the UN where uh, international policy is negotiated. Um, so here uh, we tend to work with our governments, uh, one, in uh, really looking at what their policies are. Um, first of all, what is the process of policy making and are you consulting uh, with women on your energy policy? That would be one. Next, when that policy is developed, um, have you really established the interest and needs, gender interest and needs within that uh, within that uh, policy? Uh, is there um, um, uh, have you identified it as uh, you know one of the priorities of the energy policy in the country? We then go further and say, okay, the policy is there, but the policy needs to be implemented. So, what are the means of implementation, and are the means of implementation? Um, uh, really taking in consideration gender. So the means of implementation could be, for instance, your uh, your regulation. It could be your tariffs. It could be your pricing. 
have those taken gender issues into consideration? Do you have pricing that is not blanket, but do you, for instance, have pricing that takes into consideration that you do have much, uh, like, so for instance, your electricity connection, do you take into consideration that you have female-headed households might be much poorer than male-headed households and you might have to have uh, a different pricing uh, system uh, from them. Um, um, uh, so that's what we do at the uh, at the country level. And we work with a strategy called gender audits. This is not something that we developed. This is something uh, mm -hmm. that was developed in, in other sectors, mainly in the agriculture sector. And it's a process where we review uh, intensively and in detail uh, the budgets and the uh, and the uh, and the policies that are there, and identify entry points where uh, you can take into consideration uh, women's uh, needs to run businesses in the energy sector, women's needs to have cooking energy, uh, uh, women's needs to have um, uh, technology that reduces uh, uh, their domestic activities, uh, for instance, uh, spaces for um, increasing. Um, uh, women's entry into STEM education, for instance, um, increasing women's retention and employment into the sector. So that's one. At the international level, we tend to work much more with the UN, uh, within the UN. Uh, and there we work uh, both as uh, what we call women's major group, because the UN provides a space for non-governmental actors to, um, uh, to engage uh, in the uh, negotiations of uh, member states. And um, one of those is what we call women's uh, major groups. So we, for a long time, were what were called uh, one of the organizing partners of women's major groups, where we tended to facilitate the inputs that women had. But we also worked much more closely and directly uh, with UN uh, air, uh, agencies uh, as well um, um, to ensure that when they're developing strategies on behalf of governments, that these strategies, energy strategies, will take gender into consideration. Um, um, as well. So we do a lot of lobbying and advocacy <laughs> um, uh, with our member states to ensure that gender issues are, 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 are included. You know, I have a final question for you here, and it kind of goes back to uh, one of the things that you were talking about early in our conversation today. And, and you really, you and Energia really seem to make the link between gender equity and energy access, meaning gender equity really is in a, a sense based upon access, equal access to energy. So, so with that said, I wanna ask you this, um, are you optimistic that the United, uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and that's for gender equity, which is SDG, SDG number five, and energy access, which is SDG or Sustainable Development Goal number seven, are you optimistic that those goals will be reached within their time frame, which is by 2030, not very long from now? Um, so as we, Energy started engaging with the uh, um, Sustainable Development Goals, so the SDGs, uh, since they were founded, we were part of what was called uh, the Sustainable Energy for All um, community, uh, that supported the Secretary General to establish SDG 7. Uh, this was in 2015, and so we've been part of the journey. I would say that we're optimistic in some ways. Um, uh, the SDGs has got three main targets, one universal access to energy, there's one on renewable energy and energy efficiency. Under universal access for energy, there's one that focuses more on universal access to electricity, and there's one on cooking energy. 
we're more we're optimistic with electricity uh, because we have seen a billion people since 2015 uh, give, being given access to uh, to electricity. Uh, admittedly, this is has been limited to certain countries, India being one of the countries, but there are also countries like Kenya that have used an integrated approach of both extending electricity through the much more centralized uh, large scale of the grid, but also using decentralized renewable energy. And so they've been able to extend electricity to billions of people. However, um, uh, we still find, uh, yeah, so in that maybe, but then we still find that there's still about 800 million people that do not have access to electricity and most of them living in rural areas we still find that uh, 2.8 billion people do not have access to clean cooking services, most of those being women. Uh, so in those cases, um, uh, we, we tend to be less optimistic about us being able to meet um, the SDG 7 unless there is strong political commitment and investments to move forward. We are not optimistic by what we hear coming out of uh, the International Energy Agency that says that 6.2 million people will remain without access to electricity by 2030. And what makes me even more um, uh, sad is that most of these people come from the continent that I am from, and that's in Sub-Saharan Africa. <coughs> so there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. And the focus needs to be, if we're going to meet SDG 7, the focus needs to be getting the gender question right and getting the cooking energy right. And of course, because women play such an important role in providing cooking and cooking energy, the two are very much interconnected. So in that we feel that one, we need to move ahead and be get the political commitment to addressing gender equality and women's empowerment in the energy sector. Our heads of states, um, our, um, our ministers need to make, at the political level, they need to make that uh, political commitment. We then need to get the policies right. We need to have gender responsive policies because that provides the framework for when which we can distribute our resources and which our governments tend to prioritize. Uh, I talked about budgets. We need to scale up our investments. We're not talking about millions. We are talking about, you know, uh, we need to see how we can redirect investments that are going into other areas that need to come into this. These are billions of dollars that need to come. Um, but starting at different levels is really important. Um, um, uh, hundred thousands of uh, that are invested into uh, rural communities can really make a difference. But in the end, we need to get the funding and investments right uh, to address, um, um, you know, to scale up women businesses in the energy sector, to make sure that women have cooking energy, to make sure that they have energy to pump their water um, and to do their agriculture um, 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 uh, activities. Uh, also very important is women need to have a seat at the table. We nearly need to engage women in decision making. We need to see much more women energy ministers. Um, uh, uh, we need to see much more women CEOs running these um, um, uh, energy uh, companies, both in the private sector, but also in the utilities. We need to be accountable. Well, that's, that's another aspect, yeah. if I may, that's another aspect of, of equity, right? Are, are yeah, you absolutely. seeing uh, women having having more roles in, I guess, in, in, in businesses, energy-related businesses in, in, in where you're working? Well, so 
uh, work that has been done by the International Renewable Energy Agency has found that uh, there are about 32% of women represent 32% uh, of the uh, workforce in the renewable energy sector compared to about uh, 20% in the conventional energy. Um, and while that's an improvement from uh, the conventional energy, I mean, 32% is really not going to get there. So uh, in terms of gender equity, um, although it's one third, and of course, Beijing pattern, the, uh, the commitments are that at least in all forms of, um, in all sectors of, uh, and all um, uh, value chains, um, we should have at least a one third uh, parity, but that's not sufficient. It really needs to be 50% or more. And so there's a lot of work to be done there. And then if you look at where women are engaged, these are mostly in the soft uh, areas, which I think is really important. Um, but it's more uh, in, uh, uh, you know, it's not necessarily middle management. It tends to be lower level management and it tends to be much more in the, um, not in the technical side. Uh, so I think we really need to engage uh, much more women in the technical and the managerial, managerial roles uh, in the energy sector and really push that 32% in renewable energy to 60%, to 70%, uh, push the 20% uh, to, you know, uh, again to, to, to 50%, but really go beyond uh, to 60 or 70%. And the reason I'm saying 60 or 70% is because historically women have had less. So I think if we're really going to address the inequalities, we have to really aim uh, above the uh, above the uh, above the 50 percent. And uh, if we're going to do that, it means building a pipeline uh, within our universities, within our vocational training, within our secondary schools of women that can come in and join the energy sector. So I think STEM education, our mentoring, um, uh, recruiting uh, young women to join, uh, to enter into the energy sector is also going to be really important. And also providing their role models for them to do that. So I think this is why podcasts like what you have here, and hopefully I can inspire um, other women and also the um, the entrepreneurship, uh, the sorry, the uh, fellowship, uh, the Climate Operator Fellowship is going to be important. And I'm hoping there we can get a lot of the uh, young uh, PEN women that have joined that uh, uh, to come into the sector as well. Sheila, thank you very much for talking. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Today's guest has been Sheila Oparochoa, Executive Director of Energia and this year's recipient of the Carnot Prize for Distinguished Contributions in the Field of Energy Policy. Visit the Climate Center website for more energy policy insights, including research, blogs, events, and this podcast. For updates from the Center, sign up for our monthly email newsletter from our homepage or follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.